to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. The following episode was recorded live at a marriage conference held in February of this year. It's taken from a video version, which has been edited to make it more understandable since you don't have the advantage of seeing the graphic illustrations that were used in the presentation. Keep checking our website, growinglovenetwork.org, for the video version, which we should have up soon. It will include some of those important graphic illustrations, which will make some of the points and concepts clearer. Also, each episode in this mini-series builds on the concepts presented in the one before it. Although we have made a concerted effort to make each episode be one that can stand alone as a learning tool, you'll gain much more if you listen to each one in order, as some of the concepts rely on understanding the more basic concepts that are presented in the preceding episodes. This series is titled, How to Have Lifelong Love, and this first episode is titled, how we fall in love. If you're already married, you might think to yourself by hearing that title that it doesn't apply to you because you're well past that stage. But you really still need to listen to this episode because it explains a lot about what goes on with people for years after they've been married. And also it lays the foundation for what the rest of the series will explain. So I told you Joanne and I had been married 32 years, they're almost 33. Well, um, about years three and four, we didn't know this till about 15 years later, but about years three and four, we were thinking in our own mind, I married the wrong person, I got married for the wrong reasons, I don't love this person anymore, I don't really like this person anymore, I've made a huge mistake, and that's when I started praying. Lord, please come soon. And, and then, you know, it was like, okay, if you're not going to come real soon, then can you take one of us? I don't care. Just, I don't want to live this anymore. Well, uh, Joanna's parents uh, were sensing that we were going through this period. Uh, and, and so I got a call from her dad. In fact, he just texted me just back here a minute ago saying he's praying for, for me. Every time I speak and do a, do a seminar, he's, he's, he always texts and says he's praying for me. But uh, he, he called me up, and, and we were living in Colorado, Joanne and I, and they lived in Texas. And he called me up, and he said, uh, I paid for you and, and Joanna. I bought your plane tickets, and I've registered you for this marriage seminar in Dallas in a couple months. And I said, well, thanks for asking me. He said, well, you're going, right? And I was like, well, you're my father-in-law. What am I supposed to say? So, uh, yes, I guess I'm going. Well, that started some things in motion that started turning around our marriage. At that time, I didn't even want to come home from work at night. I really, I, in fact, most, most afternoons when I got off work, I would, I would take the long way home and make some stops on the long way just to avoid coming home. And I, I, didn't, I didn't like my marriage. I didn't like Joanna. She didn't like me. Well, we went to the seminar, and one of the things that I learned is, well, you've got to date for life. And I was like, we're done with that. We're married. What do you mean? And they explained a little bit about it. And they also said, and, and good marriages don't just happen. 
The people who have good marriages are actively working on growing in that marriage. I mean, the, we have people that, you know, there's the spectrum of, here's people that are in really bad marriages that are in crisis, and here's people who have healthy, thriving marriages. You know who comes to all the, the classes that we do? It's these people over here. It's the ones that, that come to this are the ones that come to our three-day, we're in trouble. It's like everybody, you, know, you, you got to think that, um, okay, there's people that are just, okay, my marriage is okay, it's good, and they're stagnant. Well, there's really no such thing as a stagnant marriage. You're either growing and getting better and better at being a husband or wife, or you're, <laughs> I'm sorry, the evil one is working on you, and he's, it, there's no stagnant marriage. He's taking you backward. You're going one way or the other. You're growing or you're dying. So it's the marriages that are continually working. So at that time, after that seminar, Joanna and I say, well, we're going to commit to doing something purposeful every, at least once a year for our marriage. We're going to go to a seminar. We're going to go to a marriage retreat. We're going to go. We've been to therapy. We've taken a bunch of different classes together. We've gone to all kinds of seminars. And I even eventually went back to graduate school to learn how, how to do this better, to be a marriage and family therapist. So um, now... 32 and a half years later, my favorite place to be is at, in my home. Joanna and I, as I said, she's uh, sick. She's at home. But we're, I'm 54 now. She's 53. And we've been going to the doctor more in this period of our life than probably all the rest of our life together. Well, we were talking to the uh, doctor a few weeks ago. And uh, we, we said, you know, Joanna said, I think John is, there's like a test to see if he's starting to lose some of his memory. And he said, well, you know, memory loss comes with a, a little, you know, everybody with age, you, you start to lose some memory. She said, I think he's doing it a little earlier than people. Um, and, and I was like, well, yeah, I, I can see that, but I think she is too. And she's like, what? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I'm asking, I, the other day I asked you and you said, yeah, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And then I came back home and you hadn't done it and you'd forgotten. Okay, well, you, yeah, maybe. So, so he said, well, why don't you guess, this is help, this is just part of getting older. Why don't you start uh, writing these things down when you're, you know, when you're asked to pick up the milk, John, you know, uh, uh, write down, just write Pick up milk and put it put in your pocket and write these things down. So we say, okay, good idea. So Joanna, does anybody like that uh, show, This Is Us? Anybody? By, by a round of applause, let me know if you like that show because we love it. Okay, good. Okay, if you haven't seen that show, it's, I think it's the best show on t out on TV this, right now. But So we love watching This Is Us. We were watching it the other night, and also one of the things in our old age, we have no set meal time anymore. Sometimes we're, we... Let's, I just, I'll just eat a piece of cheese for dinner. So I'm sitting there and we're watching, and we're watching This Is Us. And I said, I, I'm hungry. I think I want to make me some, some eggs. And, and uh, she said, I think I'm hungry too. And I said, well, okay, I'll make you some. But she said, I'm not hungry for eggs. Uh, I would just like, like a little bowl of ice cream. I said, okay, I'll get you some ice cream. So I go in the kitchen and she said, wait, wait a second. You, you're going to be making eggs, right? Yeah well, you probably need to write this down. And I said, no, it's just ice cream. I'm just right here, you know. She said, no, uh, but I also want a little bit of chocolate syrup on top. I said, okay, ice cream, chocolate syrup, got it, no problem. She said, well, aren't you going to write that down? I said, ice cream, chocolate syrup. I mean, I'm going right here. It's not like I'm going to work and it's at the end of the day. She said, okay, but, but I also want some nuts sprinkled on top. And I, and I said, okay, ice cream, vanilla ice cream, right? Yeah, okay. 
chocolate syrup, nuts. That's pretty simple. Kitchen's right here. So I go in there and I start with my eggs at first because that's the, you know, I'm, I'm making my eggs and make a little bacon. And, um, and then I'm like, I know Joanna wanted something. <laughs> and so I made her some eggs and some bacon too since I was already on it. So I brought it back into her and I just thought, you know, she's just going to be so thankful that I made her some food. And, and I handed her a plate and she said, see, I knew it. You should have written it down. You forgot the toast. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into this. On, on, uh, in, your, in your little booklet there, can somebody, you know, I had, I had my little booklet and I think it's disappeared. I just want to make sure I'm following along with you. Oh, no, I've got it. I've got it. Never mind. Never mind. Thanks, Mike. All right. So this whole thing we're going to be talking about right now, this is how universally people fall in love. And if you walk it backwards, well, it'll show you how people fall out of love as well. And then how those people who are 70 years old, been married for 40 years, and you see this little twinkle in their eye when they look at each other, that twinkle probably wasn't there 30 years ago. They, they were, at some point, they probably, probably multiple points, they wanted to choke each other. But, so, so this is how people fall in love, how they fall out of love, and how they fall back in love again. So to, to illustrate this, we got this little seesaw looking thing here. Now, on the right side, I'm going to let these two dots represent any two people, but I'm going to be telling you Joanna and I's story. So Joanna, Joanna is Hispanic. She's got olive skin, black hair. So the black dot's going to be Joanna, and I'm the white boy from Canada. So this little thing in the middle, this is, looks like a seesaw. The little triangle's a fulcrum, and that, that line is, is, think of it as a, the board on the seesaw. Okay, so that, that seesaw is the relationship. So these, this, these two people start out. Now, before two people fall in love with each other, there is some sort of attraction. Now, a lot of times we hear people say, I wasn't attracted to my spouse at first. And what they probably mean is I wasn't sensually attracted. I wasn't physically attracted to them. But there are more than one type of attraction, so we're going to break those down. So the first type, the obvious one, is sensual. So what does that mean? Well, in some way, they appeared to one of the five senses. I loved how they looked. I loved the sound of their voice. When they walked by, their perfume or cologne caught my, oh, it smelled good. You know, um, I loved it when they brushed up against me. It just felt magnetic. Pro you know, taste doesn't usually come in for the first. I mean, most of us don't go around licking people to see who, who we want. But I guess it could, you know. If somebody surprised you with a kiss and, uh, and you went, ooh, that was nice. But so in one of the five senses, at least one of the five senses, got it started. So that's sensual attraction. But there's also what we call cognitive attraction. What does cognitive mean? Well, it means how we think. So somebody could not be, they could be not sensually attractive to you, but you are still attracted to them because when you talk to them, uh, there's something you like about them. Like, oh, you're into that? I'm into that too. Or, oh, you, sometimes it's the very opposite. Oh, you like that? I don't like that, but that's interesting. Um, or, uh, you know, you get talking you, and you just, you just seem to like 
think the same. Well, that would be a cognitive attraction. And the third type is affective attraction. Aff, aff, not, not, not aff flat, but affective, which means how they make you feel. So somebody could be not centrally attractive, not cognitively attractive. And this is when we have people that they said, oh, we were good friends for years before we even went out on first date. There's probably an affective attractive, the way that they made you feel. So you liked being around them. Being around them made you feel like you were accepted. And so that would be affective attraction. Now, of course, it could be any combination of these, and uh, if you had all three going, then it's going to be stronger than just one, but it only takes one of these to get it all started. So, here we are, one person says, one person's attracted, the other person's attracted, so one says, hey, you want to try this seesaw out together? And the other person, there's some attraction there, and they say, sure. By the way, even on a blind date there was some sort of attraction before they went out. If they've never seen each other or never met each other before, this is a blind date, you don't go out on a blind date without saying something like, okay, wait a second. You know, if somebody, if your friend says, hey, I've got a, I got a blind date for you, you don't go, okay, sign me up, I'm there. You go, wait a second, who is it? Tell me about them, right? You're looking for one of these three attractions because it's gonna take at least one. You, so you ask them some questions. What do they look like? Got a picture? What are they into? How, how do they treat people? Do people like them? You, you're asking these questions because you're finding out there's something attractive. So here they are. Here's Joanna and I. We were attracted. Now, in our story, Joanna, you, you may not realize this looking at me now, hearing me, but I, I mean, I am country to the core. When Joanna and I met, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I was in FFA. I showed Hampshire hogs in the fair I raised and judged poultry in FFA. We, I lived out in the country. I grew uh, wheat in our field one year for my project. And I was, uh, Joanna was from Austin, Texas. I grew up in small town of Abilene, West Texas. Well, I guess Vider, that's, that might be the big city. But anyway, sorry. But uh, anyway, now living in San Antonio, Abilene seems small. But So I, I grew up actually about 15 miles outside of Abilene, out in the country. Joanna grew up in Austin, and when we met, she was prepped to the core. She, this is 1982, she wore, if anybody remembers 82, what did preppies wear? They wore penny loafers with the actual a penny in the slot, in each slot. She wore pleated khaki pants that were cuffed at the bottom. She, they didn't wear a belt, it was a ribbon, and a plaid polo shirt, and, and when I say polo, it had the polo player, long sleeve polo, even in the summer, long sleeve plaid polo shirt, and then a bow in her hair. I wore pretty much, I had my three basic, I had three pair of footwear. I had my work boots, my Sunday go to meeting boots, and my athletic shoes. Uh, do, do we call them Sunday go to meeting out here? You know, your dress boots. Okay. So um, when Joanne and I first started dating, we were at... Uh, I think it was about our third date. And this was about the time that the first time that I know of that boat shoes or deck shoes or Sperry's or top siders, there's, they go by a, different, a bunch of different names. They had come into style. Now I'm sitting there in probably we're on my date on third date. So I was probably still in my dress boots in the third date. And we're sitting in this booth in a restaurant and this guy walks by in some top siders. And I see Joanna going like this. And then as soon as he gets around the corner, she said, 
You'd look good in a pair of those. I, I guess I forgot the microphones over. You'd go, look good in a pair of those. And I'm thinking to myself, ain't no way. I don't know. I don't wear that kind of stuff. Well, the next day I'm at Target and at one of the end caps, they have these, I think they were called Target ciders. And, um, and they were a lot less expensive than top ciders. But these Target ciders, man, I keep spitting, sorry. It, the, the way these lights, it's like, I'm glad there's, the, you guys are sitting back far. We'd have to have splash section right there. Um, but the way these, these, these top ciders, Target ciders, you know, the, the traditional top ciders are this kind of buckskin leather, natural leather color. These were taupe colored. And they were shiny because I think they spray painted this taupe color onto the shoes that were probably not leather. But I thought, in my opinion, okay, that's pretty much what she was talking about. So I, I buy a pair and show up to the fourth date at the door. And I'm like, hey, you, know, you notice anything? <laughs> and 15 years later, Joanna said, she told me, you know what? I hated those shoes, but I loved them. I loved them because you went out of your comfort zone for me. When, when I saw those, I knew what it took for you to do that. And that, but don't ever buy that color in anything again. <laughs> but she didn't tell me that for years because to her, and this is, this is real important. Sometimes we think when I'm talking about being attractive, we think, oh, that's like looking, trying to get surgeries and stuff and act like you're 18 again. No, the very act of putting, taking yourself out of your comfort zone for the sake of your spouse is extremely more attractive than putting something on. So uh, keep that in mind as we come back to some of these things here. Uh, but in, so anyway, um, I, I had just graduated from high school and Joanna had just moved to Abilene because her dad was taking a job, the job as the director of admissions at where I was going to go to college that fall. Well, I went off to work at a ranch in Colorado for the summer. So I met her like a week after I finished, after I graduated from high school. And um, I was driving down the road after work one day, and I thought, I'm going to swing by the old high school parking lot to see if any of my buddies are there. So, well, one of my buddies named Bo was there. And so we slowed down, pulled up alongside of each other, and he had Joanna in his passenger seat with him. They'd met at church, and he was showing her around the town. So he said, hey, yeah, meet Joanna. And I was like, wow. And um, he said, well, yeah, she, she's moved here and everything. So I called her up that night. I talked to her for a couple minutes there. And I called him up, Bo, up that night. I said, hey, I want to know everything about her. He said, no, I found her first. I was like, yeah. So um, I, there was some real strong attraction right there. Now, Joanna, um, she is like, like stunningly gorgeous. But there's a lot of stunningly gorgeous people in this planet. That kind of got me at first. But as she and I talked there just for a minute, just through the windows of the cars, she was super off the charts, bubbly, um, just extroverted. And I, you may not know this about, well, you don't know me at all, but I'm actually, when I take the personality assessments, I'm on the introverted side of the scale. If I'm not teaching or speaking, I'm usually kind of the quietest person in the room. And that really grabbed my attention. I was like, that's very different than me. And, but I want that in my life. And so a lot of times we think of what's attractive is, is sameness. 
But very often what can be attractive is very opposite. You've, well, you've heard that before, and that's going to be important, some things that we talk about as well. So they go out, go out on their first date. Now notice it says, quote unquote, date in parentheses. For years when jo- people would ask you, ask me, they wouldn't ask you, when they asked me, what was your first date with Joanna? I would say, oh, easy. We went to eat dinner at O'Malley's, and then we went to see the movie Six Pack. Does anybody remember Six Pack? You do? Is the worst movie ever. It was Kenny Rogers' attempt at, at acting, right? And I don't remember anything about the movie, but that's, I just remember that movie because that was what I thought was our first date. The reason I thought it was our first date because I thought a date was where you officially say, will you go out with me? And that you go to dinner and a movie or something like that. And this is also important. We're going to talk more about it later. But I realized now that our first date actually happened back, this is back in in the early 80s. So we didn't have, we didn't register for classes over the internet. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have personal computers. So I didn't get registered when they normally had registration for my class. I had to come back three days before school and do the late registration. So I'm there doing the late registration and, um, I'm going to move into my dorm room right after I get through filling out all the paperwork. Well, Joanna's there helping her dad run the registration. And so I see her. This is the first time I've seen her since I met her. And so I'm, I'm taking all the time in the world to, to, to register. I'm like, I, I got to be here for, you know, when she leaves, I'm going to make it to where I'm, I just happen to be finishing up as she's leaving so I can make, have this opportunity to talk to her. So then I get everything filled out. I'm keeping an eye on her the whole time. And then I see her, they're about to start, you know, closing up shop. And I see her leave. Well, I knew that she lived, I knew where she was living right across the street from the campus. So I kind of played it cool and I let her get about 50 yards ahead of me. And then I kind of make it look like an accident. And I walk out the door. She's already walked out the door. She's down the sidewalk about 50 yards. And I say, Joanna, is that you? And You know, like, and she turns around, John, yeah, hey, wait up a second. And she waited there. She sat down at, she sat there and waited at the gate of fountain for me. So I caught up to her and we sat down and we talked for about two hours. And what did we talk about? We talked about really superficial stuff. What kind of music do you like? What kind of food do you like? Those superficial things, right? So that's usually how it starts off. And now I realize what we did then, that was our first date, although we, I didn't officially ask her out. But this is that first date when one, one person jumps on the seesaw and says, hey, you want to try this seesaw out with me? See if we can enjoy it. So they begin to make themselves vulnerable to each other. They start to talk, ask each other questions, and by vulnerable, what I mean, uh, there's, there's all levels of vulnerability, but anytime that you're letting somebody else see something or hear something about you that you don't just tell the whole world that's not on your t-shirt or on your bumper sticker, then you're being vulnerable. So there's obvious levels of vulnerable. If I, okay, some people know this about me, but not everybody. That's, or if there's, you know, that's somewhat vulnerable, uh, a few people know this about me, but hardly anybody, then that's a little bit more vulnerable. The real deep vulnerable, hey, this is stuff I've never told anybody. We don't usually go straight there because you can get hurt, right? 
If you, if you reject something that I say up here on the superficial level, like if you don't like the same color I do, that doesn't, if you, if you think it's stupid that I like brown, well, that doesn't hurt too much. But if I tell you something that's really important to me and you reject it, then that hurts a lot more, right? So we start off on the, sup, uh, up on the superficial level. We're making ourselves vulnerable to each other. And then uh, as acceptance happens, and if it happens, then it starts to move to more profound vulnerability. Now, another way to look at this, picture with me if you can, you've probably been to one of those swimming pools, you know, the old swimming pool where it just drops off. We're not talking about one, but some of those newfangled ones that they start off, they just, it's like you're kind of walking into the ocean where it just, it starts off at quarter of an inch deep and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. You know, okay, think of one of those pools. Now, in that pool, the fun stuff is all down there at the deep end where it's over your head. That's where the slide is. That's where the blob is. That's where the high dive is. That's where the fun is. But it's also the dangerous part. So what we're doing here is, is we're starting off in the shallow end because, hey, if I get into a relationship with you, you can hurt me. If we get down there in the deep end, you could hold me under. And so before I feel safe enough to do that, I want to test the waters here a little bit. So we start off in the shallow and we stick one foot in and we say, what kind of music do you like? And the other person says, well, I kind of like this kind of music. And then if we accept them, they go, hmm, okay, you accepted that even though it was different. And so you step the other foot in. And then you say, well, what kind of music do you like? And, well, you know, I, I totally like this other kind of music, but I think your music's okay. It's, there's nothing wrong with you liking that. Oh, they accepted my answer. So then they start getting a little bit deeper. But at any point, if somebody says, really, that's stupid, or what's your problem, then you take a step back. So when you ask people how, that, when, that when they go out on their first date, your friend or your daughter, son, whatever, how did it go? And, well, it went great or it went terrible or oh, we'll, we'll see. What are they saying? They're really telling you the attraction was already there. So they're past that point. Now they're telling you how accepted they felt by this other person. So um, now I like every kind of food there is. I like, except liver, I'm not too, but I'll tolerate liver. I'll just put a whole bunch of sauce or something on it. But I pretty much like any kind of food. But let's just imagine that in 1982, I hated Italian food. And, and so on that first, where we're sitting there at that fountain, if I would have said to Joanna, uh, what kind of food do you like? You want, you want to go out and have dinner on Friday night? Yeah, okay, well, what kind of food do you like? Well, I really like Italian food. Well, I don't like Italian food. What if I say to her, really? That's nasty stuff. All I, it's just pasta and red sauce. They just make the pasta in different shapes for each plate. You're stupid to like Italian food. What's she probably going to say? Did you say, you mean this Friday? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I already got plans for this Friday. I got to wash my hair, you know, or something like that. Um, but I, if I'm really wanting to have that date with her, I'm going to say something like, hey, you know what? I've been hearing these people talk about this new Italian place that just opened up saying it's good. What if we go there and try that out? Okay, great. Did I say I love Italian food? No. 
I found a way to accept her answer. And of course, when we're there, I'm probably going to be scanning them. Do they have a burger? Do they have a burger? Uh, what's the least Italian-looking thing? But I'm looking for a way to accept her. Now, fast forward it five years when, when our marriage is going terrible, I had quit doing those things. Every time that we had a difference in something, I'm like, why do you always want to eat Italian food? You know, why can't you eat what I want? I stopped doing what I was doing when I was dating. Another one, Joanna, like I said, I pretty much thought there was only two valid forms of music when I was 18 years old, classic rock and country. So um, in that discussion there at the fountain, I said, Joanna, uh, what, what kind of music do you like? And she said, oh, I love Air Supply. They're my favorite. Now, you may not remember Air Supply, but just, okay, you may. I, actually, I kind of have fond memories of it now, but it's, it's really bubblegummy, poppy stuff. Uh, and um, it was just, I mean, redneck guys like me just didn't listen to that kind of stuff. And, and you would never catch another guy letting you listen to that. So anyway, um, so when she says air supply, I'm going, in my head, I'm going, no, that's, please, that can't be true. What did I say? Hey, I heard they're coming to town in a month. You want to go? She said, yeah, that'd be fun. And I was literally planning, I will go to Air Supply with Joanna, and I will have a great time. Why? Because, I, no, I hate the music, but because I will be doing something that matters to her and that she likes, and I will enjoy it. I won't pretend to enjoy it. I will enjoy it. I will decide to enjoy it because I want to be with her. Fast forward five years later, we're married now for a couple years. We're riding in the car. Air Supply comes on. She's reaching for the volume, turn it up. I'm reaching for change the channel. And I'm, why do you, why, why, I'm in this car too. We got to listen to something we both like, you know? Why did I think my marriage was going bad? I'm not doing what I used to do when I was dating. You know what I was telling myself? You're trying to make me somebody I'm not. No, she wasn't. She was just saying, hey, I like this. Can you accept this about me? Can you share with me what I like? So, as, as we make ourselves in, uh, vulnerable, if that's accepted, then we feel like we can go a little deeper. But any time that it's rejected, we have to back up. Now, what happens if you're holding hands and walking to this pool? What do, you, what do you have to do when your spouse backs up? If you want to stay holding hands, you got to back up too. But very often what happens is, oh, come on. And we start trying to pull them in deeper and we wonder why they resist. You jumped ahead. So here's what's happened when we're falling in love. So we're making ourselves vulnerable. So white dots making themselves vulnerable. Black dot accepts that vulnerability. They move in a little closer. Black dot then makes themselves vulnerable. White dot accepts it. They move a little closer. So this goes back and forth and as they're inching in toward the middle of this seesaw. Mutual acceptance of the vulnerability leads to interdependence. So now these two people are close to the middle. This is where it starts feeling good. We become more dependent on each other for being fulfilled by human interaction. We're getting our emotional desires felt, uh, filled. And it feels really good. And so we start to become interdependent on each other. I'm, look, I'm seeking that 
more from you than anybody else. And I'm getting that more from, and I'm giving that more to you than from anybody else. So keep this in mind. Interdependence is very different than dependence. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, of course, anytime there's rejection happens, so the black dot rejected the white dot, so the white dot moves over. Now look what's happened to the seesaw. Again, this is like the pool. What does the black dot need to do to create equilibrium again, to get balance? They've got to move backwards. Continual rejection leads to exasperation. Once you sit out there over and over again and you're rejecting the other over and over again, they keep backing up on that seesaw. Eventually, when they're sitting there up to their edge, it gets really scary because what happens, where can you get hurt the most out on the seesaw? Is out at the edge. That's where if it slams down, it hurts a lot more. Did anybody ever have the opportunity to play on a seesaw as a child by yourself? Raise your hand if you ever did that. Okay, it, well, I was thinking it was going to be more, but oh, about a third of you. So you know this, what I'm talking about. I had the opportunity very, very many times as a child to play seesaw by myself. There was a seesaw across the street from my grandmother's house, and she lived across the street from an elementary school. And, and um, so I would go see her in the summer, whether nobody's at school, so I'd go play on the seesaws by myself. And I, I, you know, I would try to do what it's meant for at first. I'd sit on one end and I'd throw myself up in the air and it comes smacking down really hard. And that hurts. So I, I don't, okay, this, I'm not going to have fun using the seesaw for what it's meant to do. So then I would, I would get on one end and one day I stood on one end and started walking toward the middle. And not so scary at first, but then once you get close to the middle, then it starts to raise up. And it's like, ooh, that's kind of scary. But then you get one foot right on each side of that fulcrum, and it's super easy to balance, right? You can stand there all day keeping either end from hitting the ground. A lot of people talk about marriages being hard work. And the reason it's hard is because they're always going back and forth on it. And so they're always working to keep this equilibrium. But when you're in the middle there, it's the closer you are to the middle with each other, the easier it is. In fact, I, would, I can't imagine going back to the day. If Joanna kicks off before me, it's like, man, I got to, I mean, I don't want to be lonely, but I sure don't want to go through the whole dating thing again. That's a, uh, just having this, this, this comfortableness that I have with Joanna is, makes life so much easier. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. Overdependence also leads to exasperation. Now, as we're, as we're moving toward the middle, as we're falling more and more in love, and we get in the middle, and we're both interdependent on each other, you're my main source of human fulfillment, and I'm yours, it be, starts to become the greatest feeling in the world, and it is the most powerful feeling in the world. We're going to talk about that here in a bit. But it's so strong that sometimes we think, well, if this feels good moving in this direction, then it might feel even better if I keep going in this direction. So jumping over on the other side. And so this is what we would call complete dependence. And this is not healthy either. Because if I'm saying, I want you to be my only source of human fulfillment, and I want to be your only source, then where does everybody else fit in? Where does family and friends fit in? Where do your children fit in? So there's, interdependence means you're my number one human source, 
and you're my only source for things like sex, and you should be becoming more and more my best friend. And by the way, if your spouse is not your best friend, I understand. I've been there too. Joanna, I was, oh, she's my wife, but my, my best friend is Russell since childhood. Uh, Russell and I are still really good friends, but he's my best male friend. But I had to intentionally work on Joanna becoming my best friend. I had to be intentional about it. And that's not the case for everybody, but um, some people are just, well, we don't, we, you know, I can share things with somebody else that I can't share with my spouse. Well, that's got to change. And we're going to show you how to make that change as well. But uh, so it feels good. And you started going, okay, this feels good. So I want to go over there. Now, part of this is natural. We used to call it when I was 18, we called it parking. You know, let's get away from everybody else so they don't interfere with us. So we'll go drive off of the woods somewhere. A honeymoon is another version of this. It's somewhat natural. Let's go, uh, you know, right after we say I do, let's go to another country if we can so that the other relationships in our life don't interfere with us. And so that's natural to some, but also it's also natural to go, okay, after a week or so, we got to go back home. We've got other relationships. We got to make some money. You know, we've got a job. We got to do stuff in life. So it's for most people is that there's an understanding. Okay. We we're supposed to be on our own sides of this up close to the middle, but each person on our own side I might tell you a story about I'm running out of time here about that tomorrow, but uh, uh, I bought a client that I had who really couldn't get off of, of his spouse's side of the seesaw. And actually, she ended up leaving him, and we see that a lot as well. So continued, continued mutual vulnerability and acceptance leads to, and I told you I was going to blow your mind, this word called limerence. Raise your hand if you've heard this word before. Not limericks, not there once was a guy from Dublin, but limerence. Anybody heard this word before? Really? Not one person. Guess what? That doesn't surprise me. This, this term has been, this was coined back in the 60s by one of the first researchers in what's all going on with us when we're falling in love. Her name was Dr. Dorothy Tenoff. And as she was started doing studies on people, she was going, this thing we call falling in love, I don't really think it's love. And so she said, we need a different term so to make this clear. And so she came up with this term limerence. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. This episode is part one of a multi-episode series. It is the audio version of a series we did at the Turning Point Church in Vider, Texas. We were invited to come there shortly after Hurricane Harvey. We were informed that approximately 90% of the people in attendance had either lost their homes or had their homes flooded as a result of the hurricane. Many of them had had their homes flooded a second time. Several days after the first flooding, Floodgates in the lakes above the town had to be opened to prevent flash flooding, which would have been much more dangerous and destructive than the controlled flooding that they chose to use. Because so many had to move to temporary housing or move in with extended family or whoever they could get to take them in, along with all the financial hardships that resulted, the marriages in the community were being significantly strained. 
When I was contacted in late November, they informed me that they were in desperate need of marriage help, but because they had used up all of their resources helping people deal with immediate needs such as food and shelter and clothing, they couldn't afford to pay for a marriage seminar. We at Growing Love Network decided that we would raise the money needed. So we put the word out, and thanks to those who helped out, I was able to go and help. Now all I did was bring the printed materials and speak, but I can't tell you how impressed I was with the way this church community pitched in to make every little detail look like a first-class marriage conference. I also want to thank Max and Dean Lynn Licato for donating 100 copies of Max's newest book, Unspeakable Hope which was enough for each couple to have a copy. A big reason for me telling you all this is to help you understand what makes Relationship Rewire work to help over 30,000 listeners a month. But the Relationship Rewire podcast is not all we do. There are also hundreds of marriages that were once in shambles but are now growing and thriving after attending one of our Love Reboot workshops, which we provide about once a month. In addition, we provide marriage retreats and seminars several times a year for various organizations and churches. And this doesn't include the numerous couples we work with on a daily basis through our marriage coaching. Here's the thing. We, Growing Love Network, are a nonprofit organization. Our model is based on providing marriage and relationship help to everyone who needs it, regardless of their ability to pay for what we do. For example, At least half the people who attend Love Reboot receive scholarship assistance. The funding for all of this comes from people who understand that good relationships are the foundation of pretty much all that is good in this world. And they believe that it is their responsibility to help and give back to who they can and when they can. Yes, we need big donations to do what we do. But we also need a lot of $10, $25, and $50 donations. So please hit the pause button right now and go to www.growinglovenetwork.org. Click on the donate button and give what you can. Wait, you didn't hit the pause? What? Okay, one more chance. Do the right thing. Hit that pause button. Hello, this is Max Lakato. You're listening to Relationship Rewire. So, we've been talking about this process. And this process, I cannot stress to you how important it is. It's a universal process. There's, there's basically three parts. Attraction, vulnerability, and acceptance. If you think about, well, I'm going to, you may not have thought about this, but I'm going to propose to you an idea that may be new to you. If somebody were to ask you, what is the greatest, most powerful motivator for human beings? You'd probably have a lot of different answers, like maybe fame or money or survival or things like that. But I would propose to you that the most powerful human motivator is acceptance. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Maslow, Abraham Maslow, that some of you, if you took a, even an intro to psychology class in high school, you learned about Maslow's pyramid hierarchy of needs. 
And uh, he, he did this back in the 40s. Maslow said, okay, um, the first thing that, that, we, that motivates us as human beings is food, air, shelter, and water. If we are missing one of those, then we don't care about anything else until we get those taken care of. And then once we have all those, then we start thinking about safety. And so if we got all the food, shelter, and water we need, we start looking for making sure we have relative safety. And then once we think we have relative safety, then we start looking to belong. We look for acceptance from others. But there was another guy contemporary of him, and he said, I think this is a pretty good idea. This, guy, this guy's name was Jean Piaget. Now, I know that if you study psychology, they told you it's Jean Piaget. That, that's, if you look at it, though, it's, it's Jean Piaget. But anyway, Jean Piaget said, Maslow, I think you're right uh, for the most part, except for that belonging, that acceptance. You've got it in the wrong place. It goes at the bottom. We care more about acceptance than survival. Because what if somebody does not believe that they will be accepted, what do they do? They end their life. It's been uh, about oh, 13 months now. One of my nephews, his name is Landon. Landon has schizophrenia. Landon struggled with, uh, he just would do some craziest things. He ended up in jail many times. Uh, tried to keep a job. Tried to have girlfriends. Smart as brilliant, genius mind. But he just couldn't keep any consistency with pretty much anything in life, especially his relationships. And uh, one of the last conversations we know of was his girlfriend saying, I think we're done. So he went out the next morning and hung himself from a tree. Landon's dad is the very guy that just diagnosed Joanna tonight with this. Landon's dad is a physician, makes good money. Landon's always had all the food, shelter, air, and water he needs. He's always had, he's had a loving home. His parents, man, they went over, been over backwards to show him love. He always had all the safety, relative safety he needed, but he took his life because he didn't feel like he could be accepted in this world. And I think that, this, that God puts us in this, this into us, that we're made this way. We are driven more for, to find acceptance than anything else on the planet. And, and when we start off very young, we, we recognize this so much that we very young start having dreams of, what if there's somebody out there that if they knew everything about me, all, not just the goods, I mean, all the weird things about me, all my weird habits, my crazy thoughts, my gross things that I've done or said or thought of or all that stuff, if they knew everything about me, but they still chose me over everybody else and they chose me over and over and over again for the rest of their life. It's a very, very powerful idea. And that's what makes us go out and look for somebody else, for a spouse, a mate in the first place, is we are hoping for acceptance. 
And so all these things that we're talking about, these three things, attraction and vulnerability and acceptance, it's all about we're looking, am I going to be accepted? We had, this was uh, about 15 years ago, and uh, internet dating was starting to really become the new thing. And so we actually had, uh, I can't remember if it was eHarmony or what's the other big one, Match.com, came to us and they said, uh, we need your help. We've been going for about 10 years now, and things were going gangbusters for a while, but now we're starting to get a lot of lawsuits because these people that we matched up and fell madly in love, now they want to kill each other, and they're saying it's our fault for putting them together. Well, um, what we... Overall, we said, hey, this is not a bad tool, but you've got to understand it's just a tool. It's a piece of the whole process. And so before the internet dating, there's just, there was another, people have been trying to short-circuit this process probably since the dawn of time because it's, it's a tough process. You spend a lot of money and time and energy going through the whole dating thing, right? And, and so... Isn't there just some way we can not have to go through this whole process of going back and forth in the pool until we can get to the deep? Can't we? Isn't there just some way we can just jump in the deep end and start playing on the slide and all that stuff? Before that was the speed dating. So what did you do? Oh, I can short circuit the process. I can pay $100 or whatever, and I can have 10 dates in two hours, and I can sit across the table with somebody and for 10 minutes and the bell will ring and then I can have another date and I spend way less time, way less energy, way less money and I can cut to the chase. I don't have to ask what kind of color you like and what's your favorite kind of music. I'll ask the deal breaker questions. What, what's your, uh, you know, are you Democrat or Republican? Uh, do you want to have children? If so, how many? What kind of faith? Do you, do you have faith? What's your faith look like? Those are the kinds of stuff that really matter to us, Right. And so that's what happens at the speed dating. And, and then if you hear a deal breaker, move over. I only spent 10 minutes, very little money on that. And then move over and, and I, I'll find somebody that we can go straight to the deep end with. Well, that's kind of gone by the wayside. A big reason is because now we got that on steroids. Well, if I can get on the, pay, you know, some money to some website and they will have millions of people for me to weed through. And, and I can take a personality assessment, maybe a couple different type of personality assessments, and I'll write a little essay, and I'll send pictures, and, and I'll write a list of here's things I like and things I don't like, and the computer will find somebody just like me. Well, as I've told you, we've done 106 of these um, intensives. We actually give the DISC personality assessment, and we use that tool and um, we almost always have a couple that they have the exact same score on that. They're, they're little dots in the same place on that map. And they'll say, what's up with this? And I'll say, how did you two meet? Nine times out of ten, eHarmonyMatch.com, one of those. And here you are. Because you thought sameness is what's going to make you quote-unquote compatible. Now, I know Scripture talks about being equally yoked, but it's not talking about being the same. It's talking about going in the same direction. You can have a 2,000-pound brown bull hooked up to a plow with another 2,000-pound brown bull. They could be clones. We can, they, I can't do it, but 
Scientists could, they could have the exact same DNA and they could be unequally yoked if one's trying to pull this way and one's trying to go that way. Well, on the other hand, you could have a 2,000 pound brown bull hooked up to a 200 pound white donkey and they can be equally yoked. Equally yoked is not about being the same, it's about going the same direction. Joanne and I, by the way, we've been married now through nine presidential, presidential elections. We've only voted for the same person one time. So for most people, if they knew that that's what they were getting into at the beginning, they would have gone, that's a deal breaker. Joanne and I on, on the disc, she's way over here, I'm way over here. Our personalities are very different. And I'm not saying that it doesn't help to have, a, you know, to have some sameness, but the sameness is not what makes you compatible. It's what you do with the difference, and there will always be differences. So what you're doing in this process is just instinctively you're going, what's going to happen when we come upon things where we just don't see it at all the same? What's going to happen 10 years down the road, 30 years down the road, when we have kids and you think that one, needs to, need, one of us thinks they need to go to private school and one thinks they need to go to public school, and we think that strongly, what are we going to do then? That's what you're doing in this process, whether you realize it or not. You're finding out how accepting are you going to be about towards me. So super important, acceptance is at the base. So that is why when we get to this place right here, what we're doing is we're going, we've, we've gone through a lot of different questions. We've spent some time. We've talked to each other about things. But we keep feeling accepted even when things are different. Even when you like country and I like whatever that stuff is. So you're in this spot right here, and it's the best feeling in the world. You're in love. The most powerful feeling in the world. And I will argue that it is the most powerful feeling in the world. So here's what this is all about. By the way, now that you know this word, I challenge you to go Google it. You're going to be amazed at how much there is on this. In fact, it's one of the fastest growing bodies of psychological and social research. Now, there's just tons of people studying it. Why haven't we heard of it? I think the biggest reason we haven't heard is because we don't want to hear. Because it, it shows us what love really is. It's not this magical chemistry thing. So let me jump into it. Actually, there is some chemistry. We're going to talk about that right here. So Limerence has this course that it runs. Over on the left end, think of this as a timeline here. Over on the left end, we're going through life. We haven't met the other person or haven't started dating or anything. And then we start to date with them. We start to feel accepted and we start to fall more and more in love. And then at some point, it peaks out and it starts to drop again. And then eventually, it goes back to its natural state, to its normal state. Now, what's going on? Well, we have all these things running around in our body called neurotransmitters. A lot of them are developed in your, in your brain, but a lot of them are developed in different parts. Your sex organs develop uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, pituitary gland, uh, things like that. But everything that you think, everything that you do, and everything that you feel is the result of neurotransmitters being passed from cell to cell in your brain. And so right now, what if you're feeling 
more bored than you were a while ago. There's different neurotransmitters being passed in your brain than were being passed a while ago. One of those neurotransmitters <clears throat> some of you may have heard of is called dopamine. Now, when dopamine is being passed around on more uh, at a higher volume than normal, we call that a dopamine spike. When you have a dopamine spike, well, you feel euphoric. You feel kind of high. You feel more energetic. You feel more excited. So dopamine, when somebody's in limerence, is at, it's at higher than normal levels. Dopamine goes up. Another one of these is called serotonin. One of the functions of serotonin is it's a, it's a mood stabilizer. It helps you to keep from having too high highs and too low lows. So, for instance, somebody who's bipolar, a medication that they would be given would be a medication that brings serotonin up to help stabilize their mood, to keep it from being too high and too low. So when somebody's in limerence, serotonin levels are lower than usual. Now, you can get this same basic reaction by taking methamphetamines and cocaine. That's why they're pretty popular, because they mimic a lot of what it's like to feel like you're in love. Very powerful drugs. That's why they're really hard to get people off of. So uh, when we are feeling really energetic and excited and euphoric, but we also are not making uh, very good judgments. Oh, I didn't tell you another function of serotonin. I call it this Jiminy Cricket neurotransmitter. You remember Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio? His job was every time somebody was talk, trying to talk Pinocchio into something stupid, he would be going, now let's think about this. Is that a good idea? So basically, when your serotonin levels are low, you thump Jiminy Cricket off your shoulder. So a textbook 17-year-old daughter who's in limerence with a guy that her dad doesn't care for too much, and so her dad tries to confront her, and he says, you know, sweetheart, I'm not so sure if it's a good idea you dating this guy. And she'll say something like, well, Dad, you just don't know him. Well, sweetheart, yeah, I don't know him like you do, but I do know that he's been convicted three times of selling meth. Well, Dad, that's just because he's saving money for college. That's the kind of stuff you'll hear from somebody uh, in limerence. When, uh, it's, it's the guy at work that, that, you know, you worked with him for years. He's never missed a day for being sick. He's always the first there, the last to leave, always has his work done ahead of time. And then he starts a relationship up with somebody over in the next department. Now he's calling in sick about every other week. He's coming back late from lunch all the time. He's in limerence. I am not poo-pooing this. This is a God-designed thing. But this is what happens. And so it's very easy to fall in love when you go through this process. In fact, this is how most marital affairs happen. Most of the time when somebody has a, a, an extramarital affair, they're not out looking, I want, I'm ready for an extramarital affair. Let's see, who can I start that with? No, typically it happens totally innocently. In fact, the top three categories of extramarital affairs are co-workers, good friends of the husband and the wife, and in-laws. What do those three things have in common? They're all safe people. I can't tell you how many couples we worked with that are, one of them's in an affair with somebody that's at their church. 
In fact, many times it's somebody that they serve with in some form of ministry at their church. And you know what they tell me? I know this was God meant to be because we met at church in the same ministry. So um, it's, it's not that they were out looking for it. They just went through this process with somebody because they thought they were safe. In fact, just talking, to, had a couple on my couch yesterday. The wife's involved with somebody else. She's saying, I think uh, this marriage is over. Uh, finally dig it out that she's involved with somebody else. Well, how did that start? Well, his wife left him, and he was cheating on me, and so we just kind of understood each other. He lived right across the street. We're out talking one day. I wasn't attracted to him at first, but we understood each other. Now she's going over there all the time. So they, they went through this process without realizing they were going through this process. Now, uh, if, let's go back to your books. I'm going to fill in some, some stuff about this. Dopamine and serotonin. Dopamine going up and serotonin going down at the same time equals somewhat crazy. We do crazy things. We marry for the wrong reasons. By the way, I know a very, very, in fact, I can't name somebody off the top of my head who got married for the right reasons. I got married because I wanted to have one reason as I wanted to have guilt-free sex. Another reason, I was hoping that there would be somebody who wanted to do all the stuff that I want to do when I want to do it. I didn't get, I didn't get married because I wanted to lay down my life for somebody else. And, and, and a lot of people, lay down your life? That doesn't sound very happy. Let me tell you, it is the happiest way to live. In fact, I think it's the only way to be happy. I'm going to talk more about happiness tomorrow. Okay, so how long does this last? Typically, 6 to 18 months. So about a year on average. I get a question very often. How do I make limerence last longer? It feels so great. Is there, surely there's got to be a way to make it last longer. Yes, very simple formula. Stay away from the person you're in limerence with. Hadn't found anybody that's successful at doing that, but that's the formula. Stay away from the person that you're in limerence with. That's how you make it last longer. So let me give you a textbook. We do have an occasional three-year three limerence. Really rare, five years that's super rare. But here's a textbook three-year-long limerence. He lives in New York. She lives in L.A. They both work for a company based in Denver. She's married with kids in L.A. He's married with kids in New York. Once a month for two to three days, they have, are fly, flown by their company back to the home office at Denver to work on the project that they're both, the same project that they're both working with their companies, with their subsidiaries, whatever, their satellite offices in their respective home places. When they are in Denver, they are working on what they both like to work on. And so one day, just innocently, oh, we're, you know, we, we're married, we love our spouses, but innocently they, hey, you want to grab a drink after work, talk about the project? Yeah. So they're sitting there, and how, so what's your life like? Well, Man, life is tough. You know, bills and kids and you know, how are you and your wife? Well, 
it's not going, I'm, I wouldn't say great, it's not terrible, but yeah, that's kind of mine either. Just kind of, blah, yeah, yeah, I, I know how you feel. Oh, you do. You get me, yeah. And then they start going through this process. They don't realize they're going through it. And pretty soon the person they didn't think they were much attracted to, now they can't keep their hands off each other. And every time they come back now, they're spending the night in, they don't use the other hotel room. They're staying in one hotel room and they're having sex. And while they're there, the things that they're doing, they, it's all planned for them. They're doing their job, their work. So they don't have to make any decisions about stuff at home. It's all being paid for, where they're going to eat, what they're going to do. That's all. And then they go back home for the other 27 days a month, and they have to deal with real life. And real life looks more and more, ugh, because this is so exciting and fun and makes all this dopamine start going crazy and all this serotonin going away. And so then they say, you know what? This is what life's about. I'm happy with you. Yeah, I'm happy with you. Well, let's get married. So they divorce. They move to Denver. They move in together. And about two years later, they're at one of our workshops. And I've seen this. In fact, had just that last one we did. There's a guy. I think I've seen you here before. Yeah, about six years ago. But it was a different wife. Yeah. Yeah, I left her for my current wife. And now my wife wants to leave me for somebody else. That's why they're here. So it didn't catch the first time. No. So stay away from the person you're in limerence with. That's the formula for making it last longer. Now, look at the end of this thing. You notice I got after, well, probably time-wise, that's not good. But probably after five or so years, for a lot of people, this starts to go up again. There's a... An, a my fir our first episode of our podcast, we had a lady named Shanti Feldhahn um, on there. She's one of the top researchers now um, in, in marriage and relationships. And she did a study. She took a bunch of people and she gave them a survey about how they felt in their marriage, how they thought about their marriage. And then she waited five years and gave this, those people, the same people, the same survey again. Well, there was a Likert scale question on there. How happy are, where, how do you feel about your marriage? Very unhappy, somewhat unhappy, neutral, very, I mean, somewhat happy, very happy. So on one end, very unhappy. On the other end, very happy. So the people, the when they first took it, the people who circled very unhappy or somewhat unhappy, five years later, if they were still married to the same person, 87% now reported of those that said they were here, if they were still married to that same person, 87% now reported somewhat happy or very happy. So what happened? Well, their commitment got them to start doing something about learning how to love. Again, we're not born knowing how to love. We learn to love because it's something we do, not something we feel. And so now there was another piece of research done recently that they did... Uh, tested uh, people who had been married 70 plus years, um, excuse me, that are 70 plus years older, been married 40 plus years. And with a majority of those couples, they're finding high levels of dopamine and low levels of serotonin. So what's going on? Well, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. 
Limerence typically lasts six to 18 months. Limerence, I gotta, I'm sorry, I have to look back this way. Limerence is arguably the strongest motivator of the human condition. The greatest factor in determining how long limerence will last is the degree to which the relationship is exposed to real life. So what happens? Two people fall in love. Somewhere on that arc, they get married typically, and then they move in together and immediately start seeing things they'd like to change about each other. The toilet paper is supposed to come over the top. No, it's supposed to come over the... And, and so they try to change that. And, and they think, I will be happy if this other person changes. And so they, the more they try to change them, they're giving them the exact opposite of what they married them for the, in the, for in the first place, which is acceptance. So they're feeling less accepted. So then they're trying to change back. And so this unacceptance starts building and building. And so then they start to fall out of love. There is no known case of lifelong limerence. So just get it out of your mind. We're not, trying, we're not talking about getting limerence again. We're talking about getting back to the real or starting to get into the real thing called love. A person in a state of limerence will avoid anyone who they believe will interfere with the relationship. Why is this important? For so many reasons. But if your spouse, for example, is involved with somebody else, the trick is not to guilt or shame them. And I, I know this is not fair, but what I tell couples, if their spouse is involved with somebody else, your job now is to be a better dater than that other person. In other words, to make your spouse feel more accepted than they fit, make them feel. They're out accepting you. And, I, and it's not fair. I, I get it. But that's that's what you got to do. Shaming them and guilting them is going to just want make them feel strongly bonded to this other person. Limerence appears to be a part of God's plan for jumping, jump-starting lifelong love. So when I first started learning about all this, I was like, this is some big dirty trick God played on us. By the way, um, typically females, their libido goes up when they're in limerence. In fact, in other words, they're more willing to have sex more often. Men's desire to be helpful and thoughtful goes up. They do a lot more romantic things. And so this is what we think we're getting. And then we get married and the limerence goes away and we're like, where's the you that I thought I had? So why did you do this to us, God? Well, think about this timeline, six to 18 months. Where do first pregnancies tend to happen? If it, if it doesn't go away, the babies don't survive because when you're in limerence, this is, this is where all the songs like, all I need is the air that I breathe in to love you. You know, this is where all these movies that we don't need any, all we, we can just go, let's just spend the rest of our lives uh, taking a Euro train around Europe. I guess that's where you take a Euro train, right? <laughs> you know, just like thinking that you could actually do that. Somebody's going to pay for me to spend the rest of my life riding trains. No. You got it. You got to take care of the baby. But if you're still in limerence when a baby's born, in fact, you, I see in the news every day when somebody's, you know, in, in, in an affair with somebody and they want to go to child and that they're both neglecting that child because you don't care about the child. You don't need that child is, is an interference in, in what we have. 
And so even if you're thinking about the child, you're probably not treating it right, but you're probably not even thinking about the child. So the child dies of severe diaper rash. And we don't need a job, you know. We, none of us would hold our jobs very long uh, if we stayed in limerence. So it needs to go away. But if we don't have it, who raises their hand for marrying for the right reasons? You know, who said, hey, I've got this, if God said, i got this great plan. It's kind of like this joke I heard. When God comes to Moses, i got this great plan. You're going to be uh, my main guy or to Abraham. Oh, really? okay, great. That sounds great. Okay, so what do you want me to do? Okay, well, the first thing, we're going to um, cut off some of your penis. Wait a second. Uh, is there, can, can we just like maybe have a fundraiser or something like that, you know? That's kind of what would happen, you know, if God said, I got this great plan. It's, it, if you do it right, it's the most wonderful thing. And it helps me become closer to you. But it, more than that, it helps you be more like me to your other people. But here's, here's what it's going to look like. We'd be like, man, that sounds really cool. I bet some, there's some people that would, might do that well, but, you know, count me out. So there's got to be something that jumpstarts it, but it has to go away for the, the plan to continue. In fact, we won't really learn to love if it doesn't go away because we will just be doing what we do out of our feelings, which our feelings are not always going to be pleasant, right? So limerence is not love. It's part of God's plan, but it's not love. So this is, this is why I use this term a lot. I like the idea of falling in love, but it's not love. It's a God-given phenomenon, but not love. So my definition of limerence, it is the illusion of complete acceptance. So when it's climbing and climbing up that scale, we're, oh, this person really does it. Oh, I really accept them. Oh, I think I accept, I love everything about, they love everything about me. Oh, we're both fully accepted. And then we start to discover as we start doing life more and more together. Oh, I don't accept everything about them. Oh, they don't accept everything about me. So it starts to go <coughs> away. But then remember those couples I was telling you about with in their 70s, been married 40 plus years, high dopamine, low serotonin. After you wake up for the 10 thousand fifteen thousandth morning and you roll over and you've been through a lot of stuff together a lot of heartache a lot of frustration a lot of fear a lot of anger but you roll over that ten thousandth morning and you see that person is still there by your side then it starts to become not illusion anymore i really am accepted so the rest of tomorrow, what we're going to talk about is how do we make this thing, acceptance, be built in our, in our marriage? How do we bring back love and how do we keep that going for lifelong? Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. 
you can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. Be on the lookout for part two of this series where you just might hear me reveal this reason for being such a cheapskate while I was dating Joanna. That's just because he's saving money for college.